One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board certified physicians who can prescribe FDA approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hi, everyone. I'm taking two weeks off from the regular recordings of Reclaim Me. Now, don't worry, I'm going to give you something to listen to and something in your feed. So I'm going to cast your minds back to the third episode I ever recorded of Reclaim Me. And this is the first time I ever spoke to Kathy Oddie. And I thought it was really important that we shared this story again, this being the 16th day of activism against gendered violence. Now, I'm doing this and taking two weeks off now so that you've got regular podcasts in your feed over the Christmas period, and we will be back with brand new episodes soon. A word of warning. This podcast contains discussions that some listeners may find distressing or triggering. Please use your discretion. Hi everyone and welcome to Reclaim Me. My name is Madeline Heather and today I am joined by the wonderful Kathy Oddie. Welcome Kathy. Hi, my name's Kathy Oddie. I'm a survivor of two long-term abusive relationships and raped by a stranger. It was something that was completely unexpected to me to have a life where these things have happened because I grew up never having experienced these sorts of things. I um, was your typical Aussie country girl growing up on a farm, um, leaving school, being absolutely excited about the world that lay ahead of me and moved to Berlin straight after completing school. And so at the point that, no, I returned to Australia and commenced university and started to enter different relationships, life still seemed so much fun and uh, I was the sort of person that was very sociable, going out to lots of parties and hanging out with my mates and honestly I couldn't have imagined what the absolute sheer nightmare that I've had to live essentially for the last 20 years in various ways and nothing prepared me for it. Um, but. I look at where my life is in this moment and I don't see myself as a victim. I see myself very much as a victor and that the things that I've had to endure and experience have made me a much stronger person um, and it's actually shaped who I am and it's given me my calling in life, which is to be an advocate. and. I've been doing that now for the last 13 years and it's become something that's become so embedded in who I am, I basically now say that advocacy has become part of my DNA because I want to be very much part of creating a world which is safer for everyone and so that they don't actually have to endure um, the barriers that I've faced in my journey and also use the opportunity through my advocacy work to amplify the voices of those who are not being heard in this space. And that's why I'm incredibly grateful for the opportunity to share my story with you today. Yes. And I'm so happy to have you here. Um, and I love what you just said. You're not a victim, you're a victor. I've never heard that before. I've always, you know, referred to um, people as victim survivors. So it really turns that from uh, a negative into a positive 
Look, the term victim survivor is something I absolutely adopt as well. And I I think it's really important in that um, victim acknowledges that that the harm has been caused to you by a perpetrator, in my case, to um, family violence perpetrators and one rapist. But the survivor part is obviously acknowledging that you've got beyond that. And as far as I'm concerned, you you need to have those two terms together, the victim-survivor, because the survivor's acknowledging your strength, the victim's acknowledging the harm. And so I do use that to refer to myself in many settings. I also often um, use the term survivor advocate. But more recently, because I'm now 13 years into my advocacy journey and I'm trying to make that transition from being seen in a like voluntary capacity to now moving and shifting into having my work in this space viewed professionally. So I've in the last year um, started adopted adopting the term, which I f- think actually fits so much more what I am and who I am these days, which is a family violence lived experience consultant. So that acknowledges that I have gone through these things. However, I have both professional expertise and the lived experience expertise and knowledge. However, as a person with these two streams of knowledge, I want people to actually value my time and expertise in the way that they would if someone was coming in to fix their IT systems. I've seen too often over the years that people who are in this lived experience space Um, uh, asked to do speaking engagements and um, be part of committees and consultation processes and they're the only person at the table who's not there on their paid time or at a speaking engagement they're the person who's there expecting to just be grateful to be asked um, to share their most traumatic things that have happened in their life. Yeah, definitely. Um, Like people will pay the caterer but they won't pay you. And so this is part of, I guess, the shift I've had in my own um, journey um, in the last couple of years is to go, right, we've got organisations across sectors from government through to not-for-profit recognising the value of lived experience for sexual assault and family violence survivors. They know what we can bring to the table. Now treat us with respect um, in regards to our time and our expertise. Yeah, definitely. And I I recently listened to something, you know, you're being harassed every single day to go to these engagements and to speak on podcasts and do things and and people aren't aren't even willing to take you that seriously. I mean, it would be um it would be exhausting and also it just makes me think like fuck the patriarchy. Cuz yes. I bet you half of those people on the panel are dudes and they're all like they're in suits and they're Aaron Williams boots. Mm. Um, and and you're there with the with the kind heart doing the right thing, and you're not being remunerated. That's that's fucking annoying. Oh, look, it is. And to be honest, I, I have seen a massive shift in this space. It's still got a, a um, quite a way to go, but something that um, brings me uh, a lot of, um, I guess, satisfaction is that um, earlier this year, um, the um, DV Vic and University of Melbourne through the Mave Group. Um, launched the Experts by Experience framework and now I was actually on the advisory group for that and um, what that framework sets out is some key recommendations about, well, it was focusing on family violence specialist services and how they engage with survivor advocates um, and consumer participation in a way that's now respectful of where we've moved and evolved to in our movement. Um, but Honestly, that framework could be applied in any sector. Um, so as far as I'm concerned, I, I think any organisation doesn't have an excuse at this stage to really look at if you're going to engage someone with lived experience and you're going to be expecting them to do that without remuneration, you need to go back to your budget and say, is this the right time for us to do this consultation because is this actually going to potentially cause more harm than good um, by bringing people in and and not ensuring that their time is respected? 
because yeah. so many people, as we know, who've experienced family violence, in fact, you know, the statistics show us that um, over 95% of people who've gone through any other form of um, family violence will have experienced financial abuse. And so in terms of being able to keep the lights on, yes, we love bouquets of flowers. Don't get me wrong. Give me a bunch of flowers anytime. But <laughs> treating yeah. as a professional, because I am an expert by experience, is what is the, the sector's now referring to a lot of people when they bring us in on consultations. And that's that's something I think, like when we look at other um, lived experience um, groups such as LGBTIQ, disability, mental health, drug and alcohol, for example. It's not about actually recreating the wheel. This is a model that's existed in these other spaces for a lot more years. Those um, different um, specialist groups have fought their butts off to get the recognition that they have now. And this is what we're trying to say in this space, that for those of us who are coming from a position of lived experience for sexual assault and family violence, we demand to have that as well. And what's been really interesting to sort of observe over the last few years is a bit of the pushback. And I don't really get it because if these other areas have been able to achieve this, I mean, admittedly, they've had to fight for many years to get where they're at now in their movements, but why is it that we're um, so often treated in a sort of bubble-wrapped way, we're almost infantilised, where the service sector can sometimes be having that paternalistic attitude towards us, and and that's something that frustrates me. Yeah, definitely. It's like um, you should be happy to be here kind of thing. We're going to baby you a little bit, whereas... You're somebody that is there that deserves. Like at the crux of it, basically, you're a consultant. Um, nobody, no other consultant is going to go out and consult for free. That defeats the purpose of consulting. So yes, but yeah. it's taken me a long journey to get to the point of advocating in regards to this particular point. I see now I'm sort of more becoming a bit more of an advocate for other advocates. However, obviously, to get to a point where I could even advocate for myself that that's been a massive journey that started at the point when the first relationship commenced which was when I was 22 and so the first perpetrator in my life um, actually grew up in a town close by to where my dad's farm is and as we got to know each other we had to discover that our fathers had actually worked for a while together um, oh, wow. Yeah, I know. Look, it's it was honestly, the everything was so familiar in this situation. So basically at the time I'd just come back from backpacking around Europe. Um, I'd moved into a share house in Brunswick with two of my best female friends that I'd known pretty much my entire life. And so we're really excited because it was the first time we'd actually had the opportunity all to live together. And yeah. um down the road, less than 100 metres away, there was another terrace house that just happened to be a house full of guys from the country studying at uni as well. And our paths crossed and they invited us to a house party. And this is where I met the perpetrator. So he didn't actually live there. And it's funny because when I first met him, I didn't like him. I actually thought he was really um, arrogant and he was stoned at the time and his whole attitude was very off-putting. Um, so I wasn't attracted to him the first time I met him because I just just thought his whole personality was pretty shit. And yeah, so you hadn't like had that um, conversation where you'd figured out that you were from the same kind of area. No, not originally. at all. Um, and so it's, uh, it was a situation that when I reflect back now, I think, oh, my God, if only I'd trusted my initial impression because it was yes. so right. But unfortunately, I happened to run into him again a few weeks later at a local pub um, 
my best friend who lived in the house with me and I were out there with one of the guys from the Melbourne Uni Ski Club. Now, I actually had a massive crush on Melbourne Uni Ski Club guy and my best friend knew that and she went after him. (laughs) (laughs) Ah, young love. (laughs) Oh, I know. So I'm standing by the DJ booth having my Bacardi Breezer, sending her (laughs) downstairs thinking, you bitch. (laughs) (laughs) How dare you take my man? I dibsed him mentally and you knew it. (laughs) Yeah, the thing was too because he actually, um, this guy, ski club guy, lived in a house directly opposite our house. Um, So it was also convenient and lovely. Um, And that would have been so different for you because you've grown up regional Victoria, um, you know, on a farm. You've gone backpacking. Now you're living in suburban Melbourne surrounded by closely by all of these young people that want to do the same kind of things that you do. Yeah. like awesome kind of. Honestly, that time in my life, I was having the time of my life uh, until things changed. And so anyway, here, here I am standing by the DJ booth, drinking my Bacardi Breezer, Darude Sandstorm was playing <laughs> and I'm in a oh, You're shit. painting a picture. Oh, yeah. And I turn around and perpetrator one is standing next to me and and it's like, oh, hey, you're that guy from the party. And inside me I'm just going, oh, my God, what a dick. Um, but we got chatting and as it turned out, um, like because he, he wasn't stoned, he was really pleasant to talk to, um, we, we got along. And I think basically the uh, in the anger of, of being annoyed with my best friend and what she was doing, uh, that sort of drove me into this conversation with this guy and things sort of really clicked quite quickly in terms of what happened from there is like many um, abusive relationships, um, it was very intense in the beginning. Things went really quickly. He was spending most of his time at my house and he lived in Brunswick but he lived up the northern end. Um, So because his mates were just up the road from our house, so it just suited him to come to me rather than me going to his place and it was something that when I look at act now that at the time I wouldn't have termed it abuse because I'd never experienced any abuse growing up but when I look back I can see that he was already laying the groundwork and was already having um, abusive behaviours towards me right from, you know, the first month. And when I say that, what I mean by that is, is that he was already looking at ways to isolate me from my friends. Um, he was denigrating me behind my back um, that I, I had absolutely no idea that he was doing this and saying to my best friends that I was saying certain things which I wasn't. So it was creating a division in those relationships. And when we were out um, in different places, he would make jokes at my expense. I felt really uncomfortable about the way he was doing that and none of his friends or family would interject I'd laugh along so all of that sort of stuff was very much I can see now meant that he was able to then um, get his hooks into me because he'd love bombed me right at the beginning um, we were spending most of the time together in fact I started um, dropping out of my classes because I just wanted to spend time with him so um my university performance was really um, not going very well then. It was something where I'd actually been achieving really good marks and to the point where it was about a month into the relationship where he started this day having this argument with me and I still can't even remember about what, like something inconsequential, and we were walking towards his workplace and it just happened to be we were taking a shortcut through this laneway and he didn't agree with something that I said and his response to that was and the work that he was doing at that time was in a fruit shop 
So um, he had a Stanley knife that he would use as part of the the things that he did there with the packing boxes and so forth. So he actually started chasing me with the Stanley knife open up. Oh, my God. Like threatening to hurt you with it? Yeah, and I was just in complete and utter shock and fear. Um, And so at that point for me that was the first incident like at that time in my life because I was 22 that I would have called abuse. And oh so my gosh. I went but home. You had this initial kind of um the love bombing. So you're getting told all of these things and everything's wonderful and then on the flip side at the exact same time there's a a switch that flicks and you're being isolated and your friends think that you're talking shit about them and and jokes are being made of you and then you come home and he's really really loving and then it it just sounds very very is that what it was like like it's coming one moment here, one moment there. Oh, absolutely. And so I went home after that. Um, he went to his workplace. I was absolutely distraught. I was bawling my eyes out. My two best friends who I lived with um, came into my room and wanted to know what was going on. And I told them, and they're like, you have to end it. And I said, oh, I, absolutely. Um then, like so many perpetrators do, he was incredibly remorseful. He said he didn't know what had come over him that would never, ever happen again. And like so many victim survivors, I decided to give him another chance. That was a point where he disclosed to me about some things that he'd gone through. And I'm, I'm going to say this not to excuse or justify that incident or any future things that he did to me, but just to put into context that the impacts of trauma and what can happen when trauma is not treated and people can't resolve things for themselves, that for some people, um, for many and most victim survivors, we will not go on to harm others, but there are other people who've endured incredible trauma themselves and unfortunately they repeat that behaviour to others. And this was the case with him that he told me that when he moved from his country town to Melbourne, um, him and a mate were walking through a park in Heidelberg um, one night just as it was getting on to dusk and um, walking through like the cricket ground area and uh, a group of young guys um, attacked them and um, him and his friend were both gang raped and oh my um, severely injured. My perpetrator was someone who's an incredibly gifted musician and certain instruments that he'd been able to p- play before um, that assault, he no longer could. And anyway, what he described to me at the time in terms of his anger and his aggression um, was that that incident, what that had meant for him is that he now felt like he had to get other people before they could get him. And I I just wanted to sort of put that in context because I think having the knowledge that he'd experienced that made me have empathy and compassion for him. And it, I guess, in some senses made me actually stay in the relationship longer because I could see how traumatised he was. And I was the only person he told about this outside of the immediate medical treatment team that um, he'd seen at the time of when that happened. And Yeah. And I guess as well, like, you're hearing that and it makes him look like he's becoming this new vulnerable person. You know, they're, they're opening up to you, they're showing this side of you. That would be incredibly um, heartwarming as well that somebody would share that that with you too. So you know, the remorse is coming through and then now this new empathy side as well where your guard would now be let down a little bit more again too. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I mean, the thing, as we know, with perpetrators is that these are guys who are not monsters. These are ordinary human beings and often quite likeable human beings. Um, both my perpetrators were very loved by their communities, their friends, their families. They had amazing um, senses of humour and different talents and abilities. Like perpetrator one was like almost genius level intelligence. I, I sort of thought of him as a bit of a goodwill hunting type character because he was the sort of person that even though he was studying organic chemistry at RMIT at the time, 
he would read law books just for fun. Um, yeah. So that, just functions on a different level, kind of thing. That, Things that's seem the to thing. stick. But at the same time, there's this bad boy element about him, about you no know, this whole vigilante style attitude. But he was also very much about sticking up for the the misfits and the outcasts of society. And um, I guess it was something for me that was a really complicated thing to unpack in my early 20s because I'd never encountered this sort of situation or someone like this before. Um, so let's yeah. go forward to so and I guess sorry like a yeah a, an offender doesn't look like an offender like you don't you don't wake up one day and see this creepy looking dude on the street and date him and he's already abusing you like that's not how this happens like you can be a businessman you can be a family man you can be a great father you can be great at all of these things and you can still be an abuser though I would probably call out being a great father or parent, because we do have to acknowledge this is not gender specific, um, that uh, we hear this so much in regards to, um, oh, I didn't want to leave him because he, uh, he was still a good dad, for example. Yeah. But yeah. the fact is when a child is witnessing or hearing abuse, they're actually being abused themselves. And they're often overlooked as victims in cases of domestic abuse as well. Absolutely. And so I don't think someone can be a good parent figure if they're um, abusing their partner. Yeah, absolutely. I think it's just more, you, you're not going to, you know, you can still be a good person as, part, as far as everybody else in the community sees you. You can raise money for, um, you could probably go through and raise money for family violence awareness. You could be anything, raising money for charity, taking in foster children, all of those different types of things that the community sees could be who that person is, but that's not who they are behind closed doors. Oh, definitely. And this is the why um, sexual assault and family violence is is so insidious because I think there's this narrative out there that it's a certain type of person and it's it's not. It could be any person um, that can perpetrate this or be a victim of this. Um, so it's, it's, I think one of the best things I read in recent years actually was, um, written by Tom Ma, um, Jill Ma's husband after she was raped and murdered. And it was, uh, it's an article called the monster myth. And I really encourage everyone to read that because it addresses those sorts of themes. Yeah, definitely. I think that's really good. And I think that it's also, you know, what we hear and see in the media as well. It, that's one of the reasons I really wanted to do this podcast because people have this perception of of what an abuser and everything like that looks like. And then when you add on top of that, the way that the media reports on things, it it creates a difference in, in what has actually happened. So like the case of um, Hannah Baxter mm. and her family who were tragically murdered mm. by a family annihilator being the father and husband in that relationship who we won't name because he doesn't deserve to be named. Exactly. But in the media, it was this nice guy. He had done all of these things um, and there was never a mention of Hannah's name. There was never a mention of really the children. The focus of the article was how did this amazing pillar of the community commit such a horrific crime? What led him to that? The wife must have done something. Mm. The kids must have pushed him to the edge as if we're blaming victims now for who's just murdered his whole family. Like it's just the the mind boggles. But I guess that's why we need to talk about it and why it needs to be raised because the person that you see on the street that's a really, really hot guy could still be a rapist. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah, and and that good guy myth, um, oh, God, I'm so over seeing that reported in in different media outlets that we've just seen time and time again over, like I'm just thinking just in the last five years alone that when there's been these situations where it's predominantly, because I can't even think of a case where it's been um, a man murdered by the woman um, in off the top of my head, but I can think of multiple cases where a woman and her children has been murdered by um, the, the, um, the father and the, um, the partner 
and then he goes on to end his own life by suicide. And then you see the media reports of them getting quotes from um, the footy club guy, the colleague person, all these sorts of um, things saying, oh, but he was such a good guy. Oh, he was great at the footy club, always nice to everyone. It's just like enough already. We've got so much that we've seen over and over again, this pattern of behaviour let's not buy into that narrative anymore. Yeah. Why is it even on the news? Why would you even put that on there? Cut it out. We don't want to hear about how nice the family murderer is. That's ridiculous. Absolutely. And it's funny when you said like um, that, no, Hannah Baxter's um, murderer and the murder of her children, that he shouldn't be named. I completely agree with you. And, in fact, in, in regards to my perpetrators, well, one, I've never been given um, the right to be told the name of my rapist, even though the police know who that is. Um, what? Oh, that's that's its own story in itself. But the two family violence perpetrators, um, my names for them that basically are interchangeable <laughs> at different moments are fuckwit and dickhead. That's the way I think of them in my head because they no longer deserve their names and I will never, ever refer to them by their names ever again. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a T-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your health care. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full important safety information, visit juvederm.com. Yeah, definitely. And this is something that I've really toiled with as well with the gag laws and, and what our rights are. And I guess my perpetrator went to jail, but my perpetrator also has children that are the age that I that he attacked me now. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think there is potentially in that specific case a good reason to bring the name up because this person's a member of the community and like we just said, you don't know what a perpetrator looks like. So if you don't know that this person's done this crime and you're sending your 14-year-old child mm. off again to a sleepover at his house, maybe there is warrant in in bringing that to light oh, um, and saying his name. Um, that's the only way I think or if it was a 
repeat offender of um, stalking or I don't know, something like that, maybe if it became something that we could save people by saying the name, Mm. then 100%. But yeah, it's always pissed me off that everybody can, everybody in in Australia knows who Ivan Milad is. But you mentioned Gabor Neugebauer and nobody knows who that is. And that, that really frustrates me that the victims aren't the center of the story and that the offender becomes often this like cult figure. Yes. Yeah. They should just be written off into oblivion. And yeah, I, I just know, look at what would it even benefit for me to name these individuals? Because it would then, as far as I'm concerned, that they would, it would still continue them having a power over me. Like I, I think it's really important for me to share the stories of what I've experienced. Not that it's easy. Um, not that I get joy out of this, um, because it's basically keeping the trauma continually close to the surface. But I recognise the power in storytelling. It's something that's part of our innate human humanness to fail any other term that's coming to my mind right now that it's the way we've connected for um since you know mankind oh god mankind oh. <laughs> <laughs> the patriarchy wins i know <laughs> so let's just say since you know the human um civilization commenced we have connected over fires telling our stories and passing those on because that's the way to teach and it's the way that it's instinctively part of us the way that we will engage with things in the the most effective way if you just bombard someone with stats and facts they're going to tune out you need to um this is why your podcast is so important because you need to connect the stats with the fact that this is actual real human beings who've experienced this and and no we're not faceless we're not nameless and these impacts that it's had on us um don't need to have been as severe as what they have if there are different ways to respond to these situations or if there's better education um, to and and the way that we actually, in terms of respectful relationships um, and safer schools and all the things that we can do from an earlier age, this doesn't have to be inevitable that what um, people like you and me have endured that this is the, the what we have to accept as a, the status quo and what will continue happening forever. Yeah, absolutely. I really agree with that. And plus we can make a game out of it. And like the game is that we come up with a new name for each perpetrator, like <laughs> shit stain, and we can't use the same name twice. Yeah. So we have to get really creative. <laughs> yeah, that's actually a really good name. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Oh, no, that's good. Okay, so... We we went off track a little bit, but I'm glad. I like I like that. It's an organic conversation. Um, so take me back. Your um, you've you're at your share house. Your friends are there consoling you. You've now reconnected with the um, perpetrator again, and he's just told you about all of this stuff and and really apologized. And you've decided um, you'll give this another shot. Yes. Yeah, so at that point, we did, and then. Unfortunately, the abuse continued to escalate and um, got to a point where my two um, female friends decided that it was just too much for them and they moved out. Um, Not that they really were honest to me about the reasons they moved out. And To this day, I just wish they'd had a conversation with me about it. Um, But what, as I was saying earlier, I didn't know at the time is that he was turning them against me. So what they believed of things that I was saying about them to him, I had never actually said or done. And so what's really sad to me is two friendships that I valued so much that I'd grown up with these um, people throughout my life. And this was the, you know, the excitement of having this share house together for the first time because we'd you know, lived in other places and visited each other. 
um, that it got completely destroyed um, through him. So what happened when they moved out is that he actually moved himself in, though he was pretty much living there anyway at that point. Um, And he moved his two younger brothers in. Oh, my gosh. I guess it's it's an important thing to highlight what that's done to you as well because I think if you are a friend of somebody that is in um, a relationship that makes you uncomfortable or that you believe is abusive or, or anything like that and the aggressor or the perpetrator in that environment is the one telling you these things, then it's up to you as the friend of the other person to really check in and investigate that. Don't let you, the will be... Um, pulled over your eyes because so often these are the collateral victims of of these types of abuse, right? Well, this is the thing that really upset me at the time. I'd pretty much known these girls for like 22 years of my life and they'd known this guy for a few months, yet they were taking his narrative of what he was projecting about me to them and they was were taking that as truth. And this, unfortunately, is just how manipulative and um, convincing perpetrators can be. And so on the flip side, where he was doing that to them, he'd be coming to me and trying to undermine the relationship by saying really negative things about them. So, um, yeah, so even though subsequent to that relationship ending, I've attempted a few times to reconnect with both of those women, they had no interest in reconnecting. And honestly, really, really sad, but jump forward to now I reflect on that and think well if they're going to walk away and I do understand it was difficult for them at the time but at the point when I came back to them and said look I understand it was really confronting for you Um, I'm so sorry you had to experience that I hear that um, certain things were said to you and I want you to understand that I never ever said or did any of those things and I just really want us to be able to reconnect Um, to have the door shut back in my face again was actually even more hurtful yeah definitely yeah so when he moved his himself and his brothers in, that's where things escalated really rapidly and I was just going through horrendous abuse. I was being kicked in front of his brothers in, on the floor. Um, they wouldn't do anything. He would often um, be punching me in places that wouldn't initially be obvious but then would come up a few days later. So at the time I was working in hospitality and I'd be regularly presenting with like just awful black bruises down my arms and I, that was another point where you know, someone could have asked me the question of are you okay, I'm seeing that you're regularly having bruises and, you know, like so many people I was coming up with excuses for the first time someone noticed but then people just didn't say anything and um, so that compounded how alone I was feeling that no one seemed to care then injuries that required um, a bit more medical intervention. Uh, He one time was not happy when I asked him to to turn the TV off because we're having a conversation and um, that was something that really pissed him off. Um, So his response to that was to break my wedding ring finger. Um, Oh, my God. Yeah, I still have a bump in that finger now and so it's a constant reminder of him. That is so terrifying as well and I'm sure would have stopped you from being able to do your job too. So these are the flow-on effects. That's Oh, Oh, absolutely. And um, he would often um, hold me up against a wall and have his hands around my throat and be um, strangling me to the point of unconsciousness. And so I would, on a variety of occasions, attend my local GP clinic. And the the one I would go to in Brunswick was the bulk billing one where you get a different doctor um, pretty much every visit. It's at that point in time, it was mostly male GPs. And I, that was the first place I disclosed apart to my friends, disclosing to that GP clinic on multiple occasions of what had actually caused the injury or what was causing me to feel in the mental health state that I was. And it, it's, it actually really contributed to, I was feeling almost gaslit by then because I could tell them this has happened as a result of 
um, my boyfriend doing this to me? And they, it's just like they just would completely override that disclosure and just focus on the injury or the, the um, mental health condition that I'm um, describing to them and not having any sort of validation of the disclosure and never any referral to any support service. At that point in my life, I didn't know that family violence services existed. Like I was the sort of person who grew up like many people reading women's magazines and newspaper articles about um, people who are in abusive relationships and I was one of those people who would ask the question that we now know is so wrong to ask. I was like, well, why don't they just leave? Yeah, and I think we all had that feeling, right? You go, well, if they're going through this abuse. Like, why don't they just fucking leave? That's ridiculous. But here I am in this relationship, I'm telling people and no one seemed to give a shit. And so I was living in the middle of a city surrounded by people, having people coming into my house, I'm telling people, and I felt the most alone I ever have in my life throughout that. And And it's just so dangerous as well because – um, a statistic I recently read was if somebody, a perpetrator, puts their hands around the victim's throat, mm. effectively silencing them, it's a very, very strong way to to physically hurt somebody, that increases the chances of that person being murdered by 7% or seven times, seven times. They're seven times more likely to be murdered yeah. by that person the moment that those hands go around the neck. A hundred percent. And it's something that never happened for me um, throughout either the first or second abusive relationship um, where particularly in the first relationship there was a lot of strangulation that occurred. Um, But even on disclosure of that, I was never having any medical assessment around that. And I now know and no, more broadly, the sector now knows the importance of having that actually um, a, a scan done, proper medical processes followed because the um, the things that can happen as a result of that and lead on to are really significant. Like I've had um, the like worst tension headaches and neck and um, shoulder pain over the years and it's something that I now sort of question like, and part of me is a bit scared to actually go and do it. I've actually got the referral to do it, but there's part of me that's holding myself back because I'm scared of what it'll show um, is to go and get a brain scan done because I'm scared that it, it might actually show some brain damage. Yeah, and I think that must be so just worrying as well. And and it's so frustrating because these are people who are educated people. These are people who know what family violence is to a degree. And and this isn't somebody breaking down emotional abuse even to this day. Like this is somebody as a physician that is trained on treating physical harm. And the fact that they've not even referred you has put you in so much danger that it's, it's inexcusable. Oh, a hundred percent. And it's like yeah I've the the I could write a book on the amount of times that I've been failed by systems and services but I think there's an an occasion that I'm going to talk about that really sort of highlights the difference between how things were in the early 2000s to where things are at now so it was my birthday my 23rd birthday so we'd been together for almost a year um And on that day, all I really wanted to do was just to go out and see a movie. (laughs) He didn't want that to happen. And we got into a massive argument. Now, so this was your typical um, Brunswick two-storey terrace house. Um, In the house itself, we, even though we tended to share a bedroom to sleep in, we actually had our own bedrooms in there to put out. Okay, yeah. um, so my bedroom was upstairs, his one was downstairs. And I was trying to get out of the house and he wouldn't let me. As um, the role that he had at the fruit shop, that was one way he earned money. The other way he earned money was being the local friendly weed dealer. And oh, yeah. 
but it ended up escalating to being more than that. So in the, when we sort of first started going out, um, he kept that quite separate. Um, he would do that you know, through his own phone and so forth. But by the time he moved in, he was quite openly allowing people to ring our home phone to um, do deals and have them come to the house. It was something that I challenged him about on numerous occasions because I'm like, honestly, uh, if the police come here, they're not going to believe that your girlfriend and your two younger brothers don't know about what you're doing. And he's like, well, you can just shut the fuck up and just put up with it because this is what's happening. Um, so It's just so disrespectful because you're uncomfortable now. You're uncomfortable. You don't want to be a part of it. You're frightened for your, you know, you're going to get in trouble by the police. Oh, absolutely. And I'm not someone who's ever um, committed any offences. And so because of his links, of literally it was the time of, you know, what was happening which led to the TV series Underbelly, the type of people that he was associating with were exactly those individuals that are portrayed in that. So whilst he was no big player in this, he was a very, very minor player in the sense that they used him um, as someone to hold on to unregistered firearms to do um, drug deals and so forth. But the fact was he was associating with very, very dangerous people. Um, and so get to this birthday, me knowing he's associating with these sort of individuals and knowing that he actually has an unregistered firearm in the house, oh, um, gosh. he then started to threaten to kill me. And I had managed by this stage to get myself up into my bedroom and I had my back against the door and I had my legs, I'd like there was a fireplace sort of in when I had my legs extended where I could put it up and basically jam, jamming myself between the door and the, the fireplace with my feet so it couldn't open. And he was like kicking at the door um, to get it to, to open and I was just like, no, no, no. Um, and then I could hear that really unmistakable sound of, of a gun being cocked. Oh, my god! And he's like, if you do not open the door, I'm going to shoot you. And that's when I, I noticed, um, and it was sort of pre-everyone having their own mobile phone. And so at that stage in that house, I didn't have one. What I did have was um, a cordless phone, and I happened to actually have the handset in the room with me, luckily. Um, and that was the first time I ever made a phone call to the police and said, look, I'm being held hostage at gunpoint. Um, please come. And this is my, this must have been the most terrifying thing. Um, I'm holding back tears. It was incredibly terrifying. And in that moment too, I was also in a fair bit of pain because like my back from the impact of having the door kicked against it, not that it came up straight away, but like a couple of days later, my back was absolutely black with bruises as a result of that. Um, so anyway, the police turn up, I'm still in the room upstairs, but he's gone down and opened the door. Now I, I, I'm absolutely flabbergasted by this even now that I can ring triple zero, say that someone has a firearm, say that I'm being held hostage and they didn't even search for the gun. They Um, didn't even arrest him. He put on his typical charm. He did the whole boys' club sort of banter. Um, no, really. Oh, you know, me and the missus just having a bit of a disagreement. She's taken it too far. Absolutely. This is, I could hear it all happening downstairs. Oh, my God. And then they came up and they were like, you know, are you okay? What do you want? I'm just like, I just want to get out of here. So at that point, like I'm a, – you know, just I think I probably just grabbed my keys and my purse and that was about it and left with them. And they're like, where do you want to go? And I said, right, I've got family in the country. At that point I didn't have a car. So I said, if you take me to Southern Cross Station, I'll catch um, a train home to the country and be with my family. Get a V-line back there, yeah. But what happened in reality was that when I got to Southern Cross Station, I actually just caught a train straight back to Brunswick because 
the way that the police were talking to me in the car and not offering me any real supports. Um, they didn't offer me any referral to any family violence service. Um, they didn't take me to the hospital, uh, even though I said that I was in pain to get checked out. I basically had no faith in them at that moment. And what I did know is what um, my perpetrator would be likely to do. Now, that house was um, at that point, the lease was entirely in my name and the majority of the furniture in there belonged to me of things that my family had saved up and given to me in different... And it's not being materialistic, but at the time I'm thinking, oh, my God, if I do not go back to that house... I'm going to return and he'll have gone on an absolute orgy of destruction and then I'm going to have to wear the cost of that. And I'm going Yeah, to- everything of yours will be destroyed. Yeah, and also the other key point at that moment for me, what was going on in my head was like I don't even know how to tell this to my family at this moment. I don't even know how to describe this to myself. At that point I didn't have the language to really verbalise it and I, all I knew was, I can't burden them with this because at the time my mum had just been diagnosed with bipolar and had lost her job as a teacher and she was in a really, really bad um, mental space. Um, My older brother who suffers from Crohn's disease and haemophilia, he'd had an operation which unfortunately didn't go well and he ended up having to have six months um, recovery time in hospital. So he was in hospital dealing with this really awful injury. Um, And then my dad had just had a a marriage end and he was caught up in all the emotion of that. So my mum, my dad and my brother are amazing human beings and all very loving and supportive, but they were going through their own stuff at that moment and they were actually looking to me for support. Now, I just did not feel like I could add to their burdens in that moment. Um, So that's why the two things, the the property issue plus the not burdening my family is what led me to get back on the train that day. And it's also that continued cycle, right, of abuse where You've been gaslit. Nobody's taking you seriously. You've gone to the doctors. They brush it off. You go to the um, the police, arrive at your house. They don't even fucking search for the gun. That is out fucking rageous. I can't even believe that that's a thing that's happened. Like, I mean, I'm not shocked because obviously things happen sometimes, but seriously, there's none. Like, oh, I just can't even believe that. That he wasn't arrested, that no statements were taken, which became significant later when I went through victims of crime uh, assistance. This isn't um, 60 years ago either. No. This is in recent times. That's that's why this is – that's why these discussions need to happen. That was that 2003 when that happened, that oh incident. Um, but you can see in your mind as well through this, you know, all of these people in powerful positions or positions of authority are undermining your experience. So it's gaslighting you to a degree where you're kind of probably second-guessing if it's even that bad. It really was making me question my sanity and I'm someone who up until this relationship had never had any mental health issues and I'd also been someone in terms of my physical health I really hadn't had any major complaints. Now, this relationship was the start of that all changing. So not surprisingly, um, I developed really severe depression, anxiety and PTSD um, during that relationship. Um it really felt to me like I was living in a war zone and just having to look at how I survived each day. And I ended up dropping out of uni because trying to focus on anything than just my daily survival um, was too much. It was it was just such a dreadful existence and also a very isolated existence because I didn't feel like I could tell those closest to me about the severity of what was happening and I couldn't yeah, for, for many years actually. Um, and though at the same time I did actually try to leave him multiple occasions, that I it was sort of that twin thing of like one he'd be telling me to go and I'd be wanting to go. So I would start physically packing the boxes and then he'd come up and have a knife at my throat and be saying to me, if you leave me, I will 
kill you and bury you in the backyard and then I'm actually going to go after your friends and your family and kill them. And so at that point he'd eroded my sense of self-worth so much that I actually was at a point that I didn't care what happened to me but I cared what happened to my loved ones. So I stayed for for them, not for me. Um, Yeah. And there were points during that relationship which lasted for three and a half years where things just seemed so desperate um, and so awful that I'm thinking he, he is actually going to kill me but I can't let him do that, that I attempted suicide on three different occasions within that relationship. Oh, I'm so sorry to hear that. That's Because it seemed like a way that would be less distressing um, but I, I ended up not following through with those but but you've gotten to this point and it's this gradual gradual thing that happens and you've gotten to this point where you no longer want to to live anymore um you know you don't even value your own life or existence anymore your whole sense of self-worth has been eroded away yes and I think it's important as well to highlight you know you've tried to leave multiple times and I think on average it takes seven occasions for somebody to leave. So that might be more than seven. It might be less than seven. But usually when somebody is fleeing something like this, they go back um, and they don't successfully leave for multiple reasons. Mm. And that's important for the people around somebody who is going through this to understand that if their if their mate goes back, um, they can't get angry with the mate. You just need to be there. You just need to stick it out with them because they just might need a few more attempts. And it's not because of any other reason, you know, they're not on most occasions that they still probably love the perpetrator as well, but there's other things. There's the finances, there's the children potentially who are involved. There's so many different factors for so many different cases. You can't generalize them all, but, but that's something worth highlighting. And in your case, it was a fear and intimidation and a threat of killing you that made you also stay. So that's just, that would have been I can't even imagine the level of exhaustion you must have felt every day from being so hypervigilant for your own life. Uh, it, was, it was just absolutely awful. But when I did finally manage to get away from him, um, it was I'd, um, m- I moved to a, a, a different location in Brunswick. I got a, a unit um, that I could afford by myself at that point. Um, and we were still together, um, but we were both sort of, it was tapering off in that, like, to be honest, I think he was actually probably cheating on me at that stage. Not that he's ever told me that. I just had that sort of gut instinct. Um, but it it was something by physically being able to get into a different location that, as far as I'm concerned, that was sort of my really huge step into being able to completely break that off and what actually enabled me to end the relationship once and for all is something that most people are going to be quite surprised about because it's not all the awful things that he did to me it was actually yet again something to do with one of my family members so it was in regards to my older brother who at that point was still um he was had another admission into the Alfred Hospital, and at this point, it was quite a serious head injury where um, there was the potential that you know it it could be something that he might end uh, his life might end as a result of this injury. And so I just wanted yeah. to get there, um, yeah. and I said to um, my perpetrator please come to the hospital with me. I, I really would appreciate the support. And, and his response at that time was, I visited your hospital, your brother in hospital before. That's not my idea of fun. No, I'm not going. Fucking asshole. Yeah, exactly. And that's exactly what I felt at the time. And I was just like, do you know what? If this was reversed and if this was any of his family members and I responded like this, I would be beaten up black and blue and I just thought, you know what, this is it. I've had enough. So I just turned back to him in that conversation and just said, right, so do you actually want to be with me? Because he'd been doing this whole thing for weeks of I don't want to be with you, I want to be with you, I don't want to be with you. I was like, so do you want to be with me or not? He's like, no. And I said, okay, that's fine. So I said, 
um, because this was over the phone, this conversation was happening. I said, that's okay. Well, what I'll do is I'll pack up the stuff that's in my house here and I'll bring it over to where you're living. Um, He said, great. And so in that instance, it actually felt like it had ended relatively amicably, or so I thought, um, because a week later, well, that's the point that I started to become aware of it, he actively started stalking and harassing me. And that continued for 10 years. Wow. Thank you, Kathy, for coming on and sharing part one of your story. We will be back next week with a final part two. Thank you for listening to Reclaim Me. Signing out. This content may have been distressing or triggering for some listeners. In Australia, for national crisis support, please contact Lifeline on 131114. For more resources, please see the show notes for this episode. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.